Welcome to the Rooftop Podcast, another Afghan episode. I have to tell you guys, I have gotten to where I look forward to these podcasts because I feel like it is an opportunity for me to just, I don't know why, but I feel like um, it's an opportunity for me to take a breath and just let my toes uncurl and just be with friends and talk about what's happening in a very real, authentic way. And I don't know, maybe it's because I know a lot of you who are on this podcast. I know that it's growing. I know that there's a lot of interest in what's happening in Afghanistan. This is something that has the heart and attention of a lot of people, not just in the United States, but all over the world. But I feel like whenever I do this podcast that I'm sitting down with friends And, you know, that's an important thing to me these days because the rest of my day seems consumed with just uh, one event or one crisis after another Um, as we continue to try to honor the promise of helping our American citizens and Afghan partners who are in duress find safety and freedom. So the topic that I thought I would do today is, well, it's a question that I want to pose. And in posing this question, like I I always try to do, I hope that you can also pose this question to yourself. And the question is this, why build a movement? Why build a movement? And The reason I ask that question is because that is something that I believe deeply in as a former Green Beret. It's also something that my mother and father taught me, um, this notion of punching above your weight, playing a purpose bigger than yourself. When I got in Special Forces, I, I, I noticed that Green Berets throughout history were great at helping to build a movement. I mean, if you look at the OSS, the Jedberg teams, the three-person teams that jumped into Nazi-occupied Europe, they worked with the partisans to what? To build a movement. It was a resistance. It was a resistance to uh, an external to, to an overarching power that was oppressive. If you look at uh, Vietnam, Green Berets in Vietnam worked with the Montagnard tribe to build a movement. If you look at Iraq, 10th Special Forces Group worked with the Kurds to build a movement. If you look at Afghanistan, Village Stability, Special Forces Group from from all groups, really, uh, 2010 to 2012, worked with the uh, Pashtuns and other ethnic groups at a local level to build a movement of Afghans standing up for themselves. So both historically and operationally, I've just, it's inculcated in me. I just used the word inculcated on the podcast. Man. That's like, that's new ground for me. Um, but it is, it's, it's just, it's just deep, it's deep within me is this notion of building a movement. And within Rooftop, it's something that I teach a lot of. And, um, but why do it? The, you know, the events of the last few weeks, at least for me, with um, the whole Task Force Pineapple, which by the way, that's the naming convention that that I'm trying to push for is Task Force Pineapple. I know it was called the Pineapple Express and other things, but you know, it's really kind of how I've tried to characterize it to people, uh, which it's not a name I came up with. It was a nickname that came after the rescue of 
of of Nizam, uh, our friend, who is a, is, a, is a former commando, and we helped get him. We being just a handful of Green Berets and James Meek, an ABC reporter, and Kelsey, Congressman Wallace's staffer, we helped get him to the gate. And then it was the code word pineapple that a very uh, awesome civilian gave to us as the code word that Nazam passed that got him through. That's it. And then it just kind of went from there. It became like a nickname. It became a thing. And, oh, by the way, it is, uh, it is not the only movement. It is not the only uh, team. There's My God, there's so many. The Valley Boys, Team America, uh, Dunkirk, um, No One Left Behind. There's all of these organizations, both formal and informal, who emerged to help this way. Um, but pineapple was one of them, and you know it became I, we, when when Nizam was rescued, when he was made it to the airfield, this little handful of of folks that was that was this pineapple group. We looked at each other and we asked ourselves, "What now? What now? We got Nizam out. We're successful. What do we do? Do we do we fold the tent? Not going to lie, that's a good coffee, man." Not going to lie, it felt like folding the tent was not a bad thing to do because I have a business that I've been running for eight years since I've been retired. I have no interest in getting back in the special forces business. I'm 53 years old. I'm a little old for that. And I have a nonprofit plus the film Last Out that's coming out. And I'm more than ready to unshutter my business. We've had lost revenue. My team struggles with what they're doing next. Um, it's a lot on them. And, you know, I just thought, man, I'd love to get back to it. But then I looked at all of my brothers and sisters from the special operations community and all of these amazing civilian volunteers whose uh, interpreters and who uh, uh, young girls that had been part of their innovative projects, arts projects, female judges were being hunted. And we thought, OK, let's go bigger. Let's just let's just take what we did and let's go bigger. And, you know, by the time it was done, several hundred, more than 500 Afghans from um, Pineapple and other groups had had made it into the airfield. And some have estimated thousands. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, I do know. I feel very comfortable between five and 700. I feel very comfortable with that number. And I think that number is conservative, you know, but but that's that's a significant thing. We lost a lot, too, though. We lost a lot, didn't make it, which takes me to the sea state. Like when the ISIS-K bomb went off um, and the U.S. departed, you know, the Taliban began hunting down those that worked for the government, those that worked for the United States, and people went into hiding. You know, the people that we weren't able to help get out, which was heartbreaking because everybody was in this mindset of get to the gates, get to the gates. And we used the shepherd concept and this consolidated chat room to, to talk in near real time about where the opportunities were at the gates, and then the shepherds would move their flock in an organized, disciplined way. How, you ask? Because the folks they were moving were former partners from Afghan Special Operations Forces, Afghan interpreters. They knew how to move with discipline and regimen, and that was the value proposition of these shepherds. And this arrangement's what made us different than most other groups out there. And frankly, I think it's why we were able to move thousands of people through is that we knew who these people were that were high risk, high profile. We knew where they were. I mean, like down to the drop of a pin. And they trusted us to help them move. And by the way, they knew how to move. And so did we. We understood that country. We understood. And the trust was deep. So... 
But now these people had to go into hiding. We had to move them to safe houses. We've gone into this phase that I call recovery, where the first priority is on safety, getting out of harm's way, getting out of the city, getting to a safe house, you know, laying low, recovering. A lot of people were wounded, injured, and these horrific lines and beatings from the Taliban. Some people were shot. The doctors and, and, and medical care, as abysmal as it was in Afghanistan, is even worse now that the Taliban are in control. This draconian regime that is actively hunting people right now and killing them. Food and water is running out. How do we get food and water to people who are in duress and on the run when there's no mechanisms on the ground other than what we build, other than what we leverage? Department of State, Department of Defense, at the recording of this podcast, are minimally involved. There's no presence in the country to speak of that could possibly address the immense humanitarian needs that these Afghans and American citizens have as they move safe house to safe house under the cover of darkness, trying to stay one step ahead of their Taliban predators. It's in the thousands, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the emails that I get, the emails that my team get, uh, too many to count. All with a similar story. Please help my cousin. Please help my interpreter. Please help my father. He is desperate. Here is his credentials. Here is his SIV application. But guess what? As of right now, there is no government entity truly in this game. Yes, there's task forces and yes, there's a, a, you know, maybe a tacit desire of some kind, but for the most part, these people are on their own. And whatever private organizations are in the mix are the ones that are going to get it done. So that that became the dilemma is, you know, private funding is the only option. The Biden administration is moving on, or at least they want to. Private funding is the only option. Now, if the Biden administration does want to do this, I'd love to connect. I mean, what we're doing at Pineapple and these other informal groups is a citizen liaison network. We are able to navigate the ambiguity. We were able to move in the gray space and facilitate the way we did at the airfield, moving people in that 30-minute timeline to get to the airfield that's impossible on their own. We, we could help them meet it. Well, we can do the same thing in recovery phase. But right now, private funding is the only option. Private funding is the only option. It's going to have to be a solution from you. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? What do you think about the reality that one of the greatest moral injuries in our nation's history, the only thing standing between going off that moral cliff and, and not is you. Now, I know that's a lot to put on you, and I know that's a heavy thing to say, but I mean it. I really do believe that this is, for the first time in history, way past the Dunkirk thing. We are looking at a situation where the only way to prevent a calamity of a moral injury, of, of, of literally of the breaking of a promise that will haunt our souls for the rest of our days, is going to have to come from the private sector. I don't even feel comfortable saying that, because when I say that, it puts the government in an uncomfortable position. It puts the administration in an uncomfortable position, which means they start looking at me. They start looking at Pineapple. They start looking at these wonderful combat veterans who have stepped into the arena and volunteered their time, 
closed their businesses, taken leaves of absence from schools, and they're being somewhat lambasted in government circles right now, at least in certain circles. And they are being called into question. It doesn't help that, you know, uh, there are other forms of resistance taking place as well that make this movement very, very difficult. You know, what, what started with rescuing or helping rescue one commando who was a friend, then scaled up to rescuing hundreds of other Afghan partners and families. Now we are at a place where the U.S. is gone. They're gone. State Department's gone. Military's gone. All the bases have been taken over. The Taliban control the country. And the Afghan people who we were helping are in hiding. They are living in safe houses with a meager existence of food and water, no money, the banks are closed. There's not even a true government yet. It's, it's just a bunch of thugs running around, shaking people down. But guess what? They have a list. They have a list. They have pay records. They have biometrics that we compromised, that we left there. And when the Taliban rolled into the ministries in Kabul, they got it all. So they're sitting on every person that ever worked with the U.S., every person that ever worked with the coalition, every person that was ever part of the government of Afghanistan. They have it. And they are starting to walk those people down because they're a threat to the new regime. And that's where we are. This, you know, we're looking at, I'm looking at this private, this private requirement to, to, to build some kind of movement that would allow us to facilitate the recovery, to facilitate, and don't forget, the ones we did get out, we have to resettle them, and we have to reintegrate them into our communities at home. We don't want a bunch of just diasporas out in the middle of nowhere with, with these amazing Afghan families living amongst other Afghans exclusively because they don't feel comfortable around us. Daunting. It feels heavy. It feels impossible. It feels too big. I'm just being real. I mean, I, I, I have to say that I still feel like I'm in that airport mode trying to rush to the gates. I still feel like the clock is ticking. I still feel my heart pounding in my chest. I still feel like every single second has to be committed to this. Yet, this is not my J-O-B. This is not, this does not put food on the table. This does not do anything that allows me to live the life I had chosen for myself when I retired from the army eight years ago. And I'm not the only one. Like there are hundreds of us in this boat right now. Some people have quit their jobs. Some people have gone into a state of depression. And I tell you all that because it's important. It's important to know that. And as I, as I look at this, I can't help but feel uh, just this tons of resistance. I mean, I go back to the original question. Why create a movement, right? I mean, um, I just personally, you know, I struggle with what's next. How do we even do this? There was a memo that was circulated by one of the other task forces that was folding their tents. And they, they started to talk about how um, they were shutting down because other groups had turned this into a movement. And there was no desire 
within the quiet professional community for this to be a movement, only deconfliction. And I thought, well, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> that's great. And then uh, words like Instagram cowboy and things like that were floating around. Now, I, I don't know if that was intended for me. I don't know if that was intended for uh, other special operations professionals who have been on the news talking about this. But I will tell you right now, I absolutely intended for this to be a movement. I, I was never, I was, I've been unclear about a lot of shit in my life. That's not one of them. I knew the second that that this bomb went off and that those five to 700 Afghans made it inside the wire, that there this was a movement because that's the only way that could have happened. The only way that could have happened is if a group of combat veterans stepped into the breach, picked up their phones and started connecting with their brothers and sisters in Afghanistan whom they had fought with, who they had trust in and they had trust in them. There's, that's the only way. The only way this could have worked is if a brave young congressional staffer walked the halls of Congress fearlessly and stood on every person's desk that she got to to get someone to pay attention and to open gates. It could only have happened if an ABC reporter was willing to put everything on the line in his journalistic career to save one friend. You tell me that's not a movement. You tell me that is not the best in who we are. Combat veterans who have been through so much in their lives. Who have given so much. Who have struggled to try to put the past behind them. Brought it all back, willingly, without complaint or reservation, while everybody else was screaming at the administration, at the State Department. They just picked up their phones and they said, I'm here, brother. We're going to get through this. Showing the rest of us what leadership looks like. And I watched that, and I said, that is a movement. That is what might just save this country. Because I've watched us tear each other apart. I have watched these divisionist politicians recklessly divide us over their limited agenda. I have watched different programs focus on race above all else, instead of depth of character. I have watched us divide ourselves with shadow tribalism to the point of open violence. I've watched profiteering generals who I used to respect go to the money while these combat veterans went to the mission. Yeah, it's a movement. A movement to mobilize very reluctant, very scared Afghan brothers and sisters to take action they otherwise wouldn't take based off one simple thing. Trust. And I've tried to convey that to State Department. I've tried to convey that to the administration. I've tried to convey that to the media. And I've, you know, it's, it's been, and, I, and I've leveraged other speakers to do it. 
because I would much rather it be someone else telling this story. But but the bottom line is there's been tons of resistance, tons of resistance from my own special operations community to some degree, uh, Department of State threatening uh, investigations. And I think a lot of that just because it's mixed in with all the other nefarious stuff that's going on, but still it's real. Uh, uncharacteristically high profiteering by special operations, former special operations generals and flag officers at the, at the helm of this. Just continuing to look for ways to profit. I mean, pure profit. It's, uh, it's, it's despicable. And you know who you are right now. You know, who, you know exactly who you are. You know exactly who I'm talking to. I'm not going to call you out right now, but that time will come. And I promise you, I'll be the one to do it. The infighting that's going on right now um, in our, you know, in, inside our community, people are starting to like start to blame the administration or starting to blame each other. And, you know, even a false narrative that's circulating around that the pineapple folks actually went in country. Not true. It was actually the heroics of the Afghans, their families that carried the day. It's a lot of resistance. It's a lot of like just all the reasons in the world to quit on this thing. And yet again, I'm, I'm, I am for this podcast. I am making it personal because I don't know how else to characterize it. I don't want to speak for the other sharp, the sh- other uh, shepherds. I don't want to speak for the other volunteers. But I speak for me and I look at, you know, I look at my life. I look at where I am two weeks into this thing. Um, you know, I've had... Uh, People question what we're doing. I've had threats of federal investigation. <laughs> um, it's been impossible to do business. It's been impossible to edit the film. So why would you do that? Why would any of us, you know, pursue a movement? Because it seems that the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Why not just let things ride? Like the... Uh, one memo from my old community suggested we weren't here to do a movement. Huh. I think it's because people are hungry. David White, in the poem, The House of Belonging, he says, this is not the age of information. This is not the age of information. Forget the radio, the news, and the blurred screen. This is the time of loaves and fishes. People are hungry. And one good word is bread for a thousand. I so believe that. I, I, when I watched what happened with pineapple and when I watched the coming together on both sides of the news aisle, in communities, that people got excited about combat veterans, and others honoring a promise. I, I can't tell you. I've, I've, I've received thousands of emails from supporters. Hey, sir, I'm a Marine Lance Corporal. I was wounded in Iraq, but I've, I've still got a lot in me if you need me. Vietnam veterans offering to help. Civilians just saying, listen, Thank you for giving us hope again. Hope is in short supply, you guys. 
Have you noticed it? I think veterans noticed it. I think we noticed it a long time ago. Because hope is something that it's quite a commodity in the dark times. And it's a rare thing to be able to inspire it. But these combat veterans did. Hope is in short supply. And this this whole thing, it, it, it offered hope. I mean, I'm, again, I'm talking about why would you... Why would you do a movement? What's the, what's, the, what's the use? People are hungry for it. Hope is in short supply. And I will tell you, number three, the divisionism is, is driving us off the cliff toward a moral injury. That's, that's a big one. Is Man, th- th- this divisionist behavior, this trance-like behavior, as Ivan Terrell says in The Human Givens, you know, toward a fear-based, anger-based, trance-like behavior where we go into a sympathetic state and we are literally in a trance. We are in the, uh, we are in the Aton war dance. The New Zealand all blacks as they do their war gan- dance. Like it is, that's what we're in as a country. It's what we're in as a society where we divide each other, we beat each other, we fight each other, we, we unfriend each other. And, and we and, and when you do that, you lose we lose the most basic tangible linkages of civil society. We are social creatures. We're wired to be social. We survived for 250,000 years based off social capital, those tangible linkages. But this modern mass, mass technology transactional world dominated by the left brain, which you know used to be dominated by the right brain, is now taking over. And it's causing us to divide each other. And, and we're going off cliff after cliff toward moral injury. But this one is the biggest cliff of all. This one, you don't get back up. You know, when you abandon people like we are abandoning people, that will haunt you for the rest of your days, both as a society and as an individual. And that combat veterans know this. And frankly, I think the American people and I think Westerners, I think people around the world know this. I have done interviews with Spanish television, French television, uh, Israeli television, Canadian television, the BBC. All of them say the same thing. This is who we are. We honor our promises. Yes, I get that. Thank you for what you're doing. Not to me, but to all those combat veterans who did this. And again, so if you ask yourself, why would you build a movement? And I'm not just talking about this movement. I'm talking about the movement in your business, the movement of your nonprofit, Romy Camargo, opening a a stay and step spinal cord injury rehabilitation center. He's a C3 quadriplegic on event. Why would he do that? Because people are hungry. Hope is in short supply. And divisionism is driving us off the cliff of moral injury. We need leaders who bring us back from the cliff, who give us options that are positive. The other reason I think that you want to do this is that the crabs in the bucket will take your voice. They'll take my voice. You know, that memo I talked about that went out, as soon as I read it, it literally, I felt like, I felt like someone had stuck a a dull blade in my, in my gut and twisted it and then walked away. And it was, it was a guy that I knew. It was a person that I trusted. And, you know, um, it is what it is. You got to learn, you know, if you're going to go into the public arena, if you're going to create a movement, you're going to have to take criticism and you're going to lose friends. You're going to lose people who are either uncomfortable by the movement, they're uncomfortable that a mirror is being held up to them or that it's not. But either way, one thing I can promise you is that if, if you do a movement, why would you, do, it's, it's going to cost. And the crabs in the bucket 
if you allow them, you know how crabs in a bucket are, right? They, they reach up, they pull a crab down if it's trying to get out. They'll take my voice if I let them. They will take my voice, but I can't allow that to happen, right? Because that actually is an indicator of resistance. When I feel that crab in the bucket pull, that's actually an indicator that I'm going the right way. When people are trying to pull you down and back to your place, when you are trying to build something or help build something that's bigger than you, think about that for a second. It's the perfect indicator that you're on the right track. Yet it's, it feels the opposite, doesn't it? It feels like we're betraying. It feels like we're turning our back on. It feels like we're rising above, but that's not, that's, we are rising above, but we're rising above towards a, a higher moral imperative. We're rising above toward a narrative that unifies people. You know, I look across the spectrum at the number of people who have written and who have thanked and who have just said, thank you for giving us hope again, right? And then I look at the people who've tried to pull down this movement and it's like, oh, okay, I got it. I see exactly who you are. Crabs in a bucket. And it's all the more reason, it's all the more reason to build that movement. Because if you don't, they'll take your voice. And once you lose your voice like that, it's terrible. It almost took my life. And the final reason for me that I'm building this movement is my boys are watching me, man. My boys are watching me. My three sons, Cody, Cooper, Braden, they're watching. They're seeing what, what will dad do? And you know what? However this thing goes down, man, I mean, however it goes down, if, 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 if the administration or whoever has a problem with it, or they, you know, because that happens, right? It happens on both sides of the aisle. If um, public opinion turns the other way, if the media t- decides to turn, whatever. Um, if, an in- if, an, if, an, if an incident happens within the, the, this very high-risk arena of recovery for Afghans, at the end of the day, my boys are watching me, and I have to do what is right for this movement. And, and no matter what the consequences are, I have to stay committed to that because they base their next move off that. And they should. Our children are watching us and we forgot that somewhere along the way. We, we forgot that our children are watching us and they're learning from us. And, and, and we, we abandoned that reality. Our tracks are not as deep as we, they, as we think they are. But it's never too late to get that back. And for me, this is that moment. Because I will tell you guys what, I'm, I'm scared. I'm not going to lie. I, I mean, I'm scared. And I know a lot of the people that I work with in this thing are scared. This thing is far bigger than anything we've ever dealt with. It, it's far bigger than anything I've ever taken on. The people that, that the community that I came from, you know, there's, there's this mixture. Some of them are all in and they're rolling with everything they got. Some are, you know throwing arrows at the pioneers that are trying to do it. And um, I'm not going to lie. I'm afraid. I walk around with a lump in my chest and a tightness, a lump in my throat and a tightness in my chest. It's not healthy. But it's it's just, it is what it is. You know, and I think about the Stephen Pressfield passage in, in The War of Art where he talks about the Battle of Thermopylae and right before the big battle when all the Spartans were killed, they turned to the Anakis for some courageous words. And Dianiki said, listen, and I'm paraphrasing, don't fight for, you know, God, country, and apple pie. Don't even fight for your family at home. Fight for this and this alone. The man at your shoulder. 
for he is everything and everything is contained within him. You see, the opposite of fear, according to Pressfield, is not courage, it's love. And in this case, I could not agree more. For me, it's love of my friends in Afghanistan. It's love of my brothers from the special operations community. It's love of my family and my son and my wife, my sons. It's love for all of you to be able to just share with you in real time what I'm experiencing, what I'm saying, so that you might learn from that in whatever way it serves you and repurpose it for your life. But, but, but the opposite of fear is not courage, it's love. And I think that's a good news thing. So what are the next actions as you think about your movement? Well, here's what I'm going to do, and maybe this works for you too. If you're kind of stuck with your movement right now or wrestling with it, it's one is get clear on what you're building. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm doing that right now. I'm going to D.C. on Tuesday, and I'm going to get real damn clear on what's being built. And if I'm not going to get some top cover or we're not going to get some top cover, we're probably going to start to wind this thing down. But, but we have to be clear on what we're building. We have to be able to tell the story of what we're building. How about that? Where we've been, where we are, where we're going. I'm doing that all the time with donors. I'm doing it all the time with influencers, media. Where we've been, where we are, where we're going. I think for narrative competence, for storytelling in real time, when we are building a movement, building the airplane in flight, the chief storyteller, and that's you, always has to reattune to the environment with the people around you. Here's where we've been. Here's where we are. Here's where we're going. Here's where we've been. Here's where we are. Here's where we're going. That's narrative competence. That's storytelling purposeful storytelling in real time to meet your goals. So get clear on what you're building. Next action for your movement, I think, is to clarify what it's going to cost you. I've been spending the last day or two really thinking about that. What's it going to cost me to do this? If we go to the next level with pineapple, if we actually stay the course, I'm going to have to basically turn my business over to Eric. I'm going to have to um, look real hard at my own um, ability to, to have time with my wife and my sons, you know, and, 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 and that's just me. That's my life. But like for you, if you're, if you're starting a nonprofit, if you're rolling out a new product, you know, if you're creating a movement of that's bigger than yourself, that serves other people that leaves tracks in this world, you, you damn sure better think about what it's going to cost because it is going to cost, you know, I have to be ready to lose my entire reputation in the media because it could turn south tomorrow. Surprised it hasn't yet, you know? I have to be willing to not get any Christmas cards from the Fort Bragg community. Fine, whatever, right? Because at the end of the day, when we leave our tracks, when we build these movements, they are bigger than us and the cost is, is what we must bear. We're not entitled to the fruits of our labor, according to Pressfield. We're only entitled to our labor. So clarify, write it down. What's your movement going to cost you? Number three, I think once you figure that out, it's important to have conversations with the people at your shoulder that this cost is going to affect. It's not just you. It's going to affect your, your spouse. It's going to affect your kids. It's going to affect your business partner. It's going to affect the people who uh, deal with you. Like a lot of people who are on this call are my clients. A lot of people who are on this podcast are people who I give speeches to. I do workshops for. What's it going to cost you to work with me? What's it going to cost you now that I'm going through this stuff, right? I mean, we have to have that conversation. 
Because at the end of the day, we're all purpose-based creatures. We're all trying to build something bigger than ourselves. And the cool thing is, what I've found, even particularly with, with pineapple, is as consumed as I've been, as, as, as just uh, deeply immersed in this as I've been, I haven't found one person yet, to include like major corporations like Capital One, who haven't said, Scott, what do you need? Well, I need to like move this call, but oh, fine, no problem. What else do you need? I mean, because because those those conversations, if you're building something bigger than yourself and you can convey what, you know, what it is that you're building, most of the people you have the conversations with, if not all of them, are going to help you build it. Nobody wins alone, as my friend Bo Eason says. Nobody. And these movements, one of the things that can be hard, and I catch myself doing this, is I try to do it on my own. By that, I mean I try to carry the load. And that's that's ineffective and dangerous. The next thing I think that has to happen with a movement is taking the mic and telling the story in real time. Like I just said, where you've been, where you are, where you're going. We've, we've raised probably um, $6 million for OperationRecovery.org. Some of it's been crowdfunding. Some of it's been big donors. But it's all to help Afghans get to safety and get to freedom. And by the way, this is hard. And, and we, it's another nonprofit. It's not even... it's. Pineapple is not a nonprofit at the recording of this. We're just, we're just a group of people. But there are nonprofits like No One Left Behind, OperationRecovery.org, that I tell the story for. I get in front of donors and I say, here's where we've been, here's where we are, here's where we're going. And I pivot into OperationRecovery.org, or No One Left Behind. And it's a very powerful thing. And taking the mic and telling the story is really important. I, do, I try to do it on Fox News, CNN, Glenn Beck, whatever. If I'm on the phone with my staff or the team from Pineapple, okay, everybody, here's where we've been, here's where we are, here's where we're going. Take the mic. Demonstrate narrative competence by telling the story in real time. And then finally, I think it's imperative as you're building your movement, the same way it is for me, is to employ regimen, ritual, rigor, and recovery, or what I call R4 in every aspect of your day. Regimen. I mean, having the regimen to just stay on a rhythm, you know, getting up in the morning, 25 push-ups, hitting my knees, saying my prayers, drinking 20 ounces of water, taking my vitamins, going out into the garage and doing my warm-up for my voice for the day, a workout. I've done so-so on that. I'm pretty regimented and pretty disciplined, but I'm not going to lie. These last two weeks have floored me and I can feel it. My resilience is down and my resistance is up. And the reason I say this R4, again, regimen, ritual, rigor, and recovery, the regimen, the discipline, the rhythm, right, populated with these rituals that affect mind, body, spirit, diaphragmatic breathing, prayers, meditations, the rigor to apply it with like serious focus, not casual. We're not like on the treadmill watching Oprah. And then recovery, taking time to turn the blue screen off one hour before I go to bed. Going to Charlotte like I am right now with my wife for a macro recovery, like ritual, regimen, ritual, rigor, recovery, R4. What that gives you is resilience over resistance. Remember all those resistance things I started with when I talked about this? I was talking about how the, the memo that came out that was talking about, you know, this movement and, and, the, and the Instagram cowboy and kind of like, you know, it was kind of getting to me. And then the, 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 the threatens of investigations, profiteering, info, all those, that's resistance. And if I allow that, it'll take me out. Self-doubt, imposter syndrome, this is too big for me. It'll take me out. I have to have the resilience above that. That R4 is how I do that, by having regimen or a rhythm, if you like, a battle rhythm. 
that is populated with rituals of mind, body, spirit that I do every day no matter where I am. With rigor, the third R, super intentional, super focused, and they culminate with recovery. Every day I'm doing micro recoveries to wind down, diaphragmatic breathing, meditation, and macro recoveries. Weekends with my family. I needed this week getaway today with my wife so bad. We haven't had a conversation since we became empty nesters. I should be chasing her around the house, man. Right? And and I'm not I had I had I had I have to do that. She's sleeping, that's how I got away with saying that. So that's where I am. That's where I am on this thing. This, you know, I had to, this conversation was as much for me as it was for you. It was to ask myself, why am I doing, why am I building this movement? I was really asking myself this and I've been asking it a lot. And I answered my own question, I believe, you know, I really do believe in those answers, right? I really do believe that people are hungry. I believe that hope is in short supply. I believe that divisionism is driving us off the cliff of moral injury. I believe that the crabs in the bucket will take my voice if I let them. And my boys are watching me. Our children are watching us. So my next steps are getting clear on what I'm building, clarifying what it's going to cost me, having conversations with those at my shoulder that are going to be affected by that. Nobody wins alone. Taking the mic and continuing to tell the story in real time and getting back to my R4, my regimen, my ritual, my recovery. My regimen, my ritual, my rigor, my recovery will give me resilience over resistance. It's not sexy, but it is real. Building a movement is one of the greatest things we can do in life. It's the way that we leave our tracks, those indelible impressions in the world that don't just affect the people around us. They affect the people who follow us. It's the stuff that stories are told about long after we're gone. And I believe that pineapple is one of those, but I believe what you're doing is too. And if we can help each other move one more step down that road, it's been a good damn journey. Thanks for what you do. I'll see you on the rooftop. (laughs) 